Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Sunday, April 16th, a little bit of a dreary, sad little Sunday we've got going on after a a pretty hot week here. We got to enjoy some of the outside weather, though, yesterday. Other than that, how's uh, how's your week been? Been a good week. Yeah, we got to get out and hit the links together last night, which was lovely. I was saying spring golf, for those of you that play golf, is some of my favorite. Obviously, like the summer days are objectively maybe better for golf and more beautiful but it's nice to get out there and we were playing against like as it was becoming dark and like the spring golf the fall golf since you and i have both recently gotten back in in my case or into golf in your case it's been a nice little little activity for the two of us uh and i will say one other highlight of the week has been all the great feedback that we've gotten on last week's uh episode which was if you didn't listen it was ricky sharing his experience um serving on a jury and Ricky and I were joking last night when we were golfing, like we, we never really know which episodes are going to like provoke reaction. And it's been fun to see and hear from so many people that have reached out to us and sent us messages, whether on Instagram or um, text or however, and just been like, wow, this was like a cool, it was, it was cool hearing about your experience, Ricky. And so we always appreciate when anybody listens, certainly even more when people give us feedback, but it's, it's just Ricky, you and I were laughing, just being like, you know, you just never really know what uh what episodes are going to kind of uh, elicit reactions. So we we really appreciate it. It's always it's always like really fun and a treat for us when we get to hear uh, feedback from people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I remember when we were kind of kicking around the idea. I was like, is anyone actually going to be interested? Am I just kind of you know prattling off here? But um, yeah, it, it has been really fun. I think thinking about things that people relate to or like know of generally, but don't have direct experiences, or maybe they do have direct experiences and they're similar or different. I think it, um, I think it makes for a fun podcast. And, and as you said, we always love to hear from people um, just in general, their thoughts about what we're talking about, but it it, it is always nice to hear if you, if you liked something in an episode or if you liked an episode in general, you give us a shout and uh, it, it it warms our hearts. <laughs> it really does. It really does. Yeah. All right. So with that, we got we got to follow up uh, uh, such a great episode with, uh, with with something else. What are we talking about this week? Yeah, a very different episode this week, but I hope it's it's as enjoyable to people for different reasons. So this is, I guess, like a reflection on democracy and. We'll talk more after the, when we get into it about why we wanted to talk about this. But uh, essentially, we're, we're going to hit on some of the issues that democratic countries are facing in the world. And we're going to look in particular at Israel and India abroad, and then also a couple of things that have been happening here in the United States. So it's the the umbrella is like democracy. And then we'll, we'll look at some of those individual examples throughout the episode and see the connective tissue that that seems 
that maybe is running through each of them. But before we get into that, Ricky, reminder that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, I got a fact for you this week. And for those people that subscribe to our monthly newsletter, this is a fact that you've already seen, but it's worth it's bears repeating, I thought, for the people that get the newsletter and for everyone that doesn't. I thought this was just a really cool fact. So Cannon Hill Woodworking. So again, they've been in business since 2018 here in Boston. In the last four plus years, they've completed over 600 custom projects, 25 different types of furniture out of more than 25 different species of wood. And I, I was just like, it's it was it's just a really cool thing. And uh, we always appreciate their partnership. And as always, if, if you are in the market for like a high-end custom piece of furniture, like as as that those facts, those statistics show, like they can kind of make whatever whatever you want out of whatever what you're looking for. So give those guys a give those guys a shot. Yeah, definitely. And even if you're not in the market, like check them out on Instagram. You may find yourself in the market uh, sooner, sooner than you think. 25 species of wood. I don't know that I even knew. I mean, I probably should have known, but I I don't think I can name more than five different types of trees, which perhaps is sad for me. I'm not sure. (laughs) All right. Well, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll move on from the tree talk and get into the democracy talk. Yeah, I'm just glad there were no no jokes this week that I could... uh, Swing and miss miserably on. Keep keep you guessing. So I actually reached out to you about doing this kind of episode like a couple of weeks ago um, when basically the U.S. was hosting this like summit on democracy. And I thought it was kind of an interesting time. Um, given a few news articles that you alluded to that I that I had come across with what's going on in India and what's going on in Israel. Um, but then it also kind of works nicely as a follow on to our like jury duty conversation, right? Like we've talked about, uh, you know, two civic obligations here in the United States, which is one, you serve on a jury and the other is you vote. But like feeling like your vote matters and feeling like the democracy is functioning is kind of you know, paramount to like, you know, a feeling like, yeah, that, that what I'm doing in exercising my right to vote is, is important and, and is contributing to this like overall, like healthy democracy, which is kind of a cornerstone of our society, I guess you would say. And so anyways, like, I guess before we jump into this, I wanted to read you a little bit of a passage from the website on this summit on democracy. And we won't dive too much into the summit itself, but I thought it was an interesting clip. So there's, uh, it's in a section subtitled the challenge to democracy. So it reads democracy and human rights are under threat around the world. Democracies, whether in transition or established for decades are confronting serious challenges from within and outside of their borders. Public distrust and failure of governments to deliver equitable and sustainable economic and political progress has fueled political polarization and the rise of leaders who are undermining democratic norms and institutions. Across the globe, weak state capacity, tenuous rule of law, high inequality and corruption continue to erode democracy. At the same time, authoritarian leaders are reaching across borders to undermine democracies. You know, not a, not a thinly veiled reference to what's going on in Ukraine. 
From targeting journalists and human rights defenders to meddling in elections, all while sowing disinformation to claim their model is better at delivering for people. Hostile actors exacerbate these trends by increasing, increasingly manipulating digital information and spreading disinformation to weaken democratic cohesion. So there's like, obviously, a couple of things in this passage that I thought were interesting. First and foremost, I think it starts on the general, on the general premise that democracy is in this like tenuous situation that perhaps is new. I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. And then the main culprit or like what is driving democracy in this sort of dangerous direction where it seems like it could go one way or another are both authoritarian types of leaders that are undermining historically sound institutions and then political disinformation, propaganda, whatever it is, particularly the kind of variety that you find on the internet. So curious what you think about both of those premises and how like you feel about democracy in general before I think, I think it'd be interesting to get into some of these examples of, of, uh, from around the world. I love democracy in general. No, I, I know that that wasn't the question you were asking. Uh, so I, I think it's interesting because it's very tempting to view history as, um, like linear, right? It's just like, it's it's going a certain direction, like maybe slowly, but steadily. There's this great line in A Raisin in the Sun, which is a Lorraine Hansberry, like 1959 play. And um, two of the main characters are having this, I am off on it. I feel like you were off the tangent. But it, it, in that uh, in that play, they're having a debate over history. And um, one of the characters, she's there, it's a black family and she's frustrated by, feeling like she can't make progress and her uh, significant other is pretty much like, well, history, she, she's arguing that history is just like a circle. Like we kind of can't get out of with these cycles of like injustice that just keep coming back up. And his, his argument is that it's, um, it's almost like a two step forward, one step back type situation. He's like, it's not all linear. And sometimes it's the growth in human progress is exponential. And sometimes you know, we're, we're back and sometimes it's very slow and it's increased like, uh, you know, some modicum, but it's, I've always really liked that line because I it's a very positive outlook on like human progress and um, great play, by the way, if anybody, if people haven't read it, it's worth, worth checking out. And that's kind of how I view like democracy. So obviously the latter half of the 20th century, you have this existential struggle between democracy and, and communism, essentially, which are not totally the same thing, you know, capitalism and communism, democracy and authoritarianism. What I mean, they're all kind of, go together in some ways. And it, it, it seems by the 1990s that democracy and capitalism have won, whatever that really means. But it seems like the amount of communist countries have has faded. Now there's only really like five in the world. And uh, you could certainly debate like how truly communist any of those societies really are. And so uh, it, 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 feel, it felt like for at least a few decades, if not more, that like democracy and human rights and equality and all of those certain sort of... Um, like the like the liberal ideals were on the rise. It does feel like there's been a backslide to that in the last five, 10 years, maybe. And we'll talk about a, a couple of specific examples, but like certainly we've seen that in the United States. And you could argue seen it 
you know, Russia is ostensibly a democracy, right? Like, and I mean, like, and I think, but that's kind of the point, right? It's even like a country like Hungary or Poland or Turkey, or these are all like, you know, democratic countries, Brazil. Like, I, I mean, there's just so many examples of, of countries that are democratic in name, but you go a little bit beneath the surface and you're like, I'm not sure like how well the democracy is really functioning or how true of a democracy it is. Almost kind of like the communists, like countries that call themselves communists. You're like, how is that really a communist country? Uh, and so President Biden obviously runs on one, one of the tenets of his candidacy was that like, hey, I want to kind of restore democratic norms that we have lost as a country under under Trump's rise and, and Trump's administration. And so he convenes the summit for democracy. The first one was, I think, last year or end of 2021. And then the second one was just a few weeks ago, as you alluded to. And this idea of trying to come together with other democracies so that that summit is co-hosted with the Republic of Korea, Costa Rica, the Netherlands and Zambia. And so it really this idea of bringing democracies together to kind of try to share best practices and and shore themselves up against what he sees as increasing authoritarianism. So that's a very long winded answer to your question of like, I don't think anything in that statement that you read is wrong. I, I do feel like some of like the democratic norms or the success or the trust and the belief in democracy is the same that it was five or 10 years ago. Yeah, I I think there is something to be said for an erosion in in the belief of democracy. I <clears throat> I don't know. I struggle I struggle with this. I I did I I love where you started with sort of the idea of or challenging the idea of linear progress and that there it shouldn't necessarily be a point of despair if there are forces that are like pushing back on on the progress that we've made in making this a better, more inclusive, more, yeah, like, yeah, just a better democracy, I guess, right? Like the civil rights gains in order to really affirm that everyone can vote are only 50, 60 years old. And even then, you know, we see today that there are challenges to ensuring um, that every citizen like has that right to vote, right? So there is this idea that I mean, okay. So now I've gone. Now I've gone off on my own two tangents. But like that, that both, I think both things can be true. That we could be in sort of a tenuous position, and it feels like maybe more tenuous than it has been in the recent past. And yet we don't have to go that far back into history to see how far we've come. And so the idea of this push and pull between take and taking those steps forward, and while also potentially taking the steps back, is interesting and right it does give you it does give you that hope right whatever the the long the arc of justice whatever it 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 goes in in that direction so that like that makes you feel like we can what you can weather this storm whatever it is i think the other side of the coin is like maybe it isn't actually all that different than what we've been subjected to it's just the fact that now we have both sides, like some of the propaganda and the manipulation in the digital space, but also you have all this access to people who can point out like, hey, when they said this, it was factually incorrect. And we know that because of this, or like when they showed you this video, we can see that it's doctored because of that, right? Like there are, while there are 
there's both the pro- proliferation of misinformation. There's also this side of things that is exposing misinformation in a way that we probably didn't have before. And so like from, from that perspective, I don't know that on balance things are, are actually that much more fraught than, than they had been in terms of how like people can be manipulated. I I did think one, you know, one of the things that um, was interesting as you were talking about the different types of democracies uh, that were the different democracies in the world that really reflect more like authoritarian regimes, Turkey, Russia, you know, those in, in those types of spaces. Um, And then the others of our allies that I, you know, wanted to talk a little bit about today. So India, Israel, some of the things that are going on in those places that doesn't get as much traction. Like obviously whenever something is egregiously wrong in a Russia or a China. That's like a headline news type of situation because these are, you know, like you called them long ago, like our enemies 1A and 1B. When they slip up and and head further towards authoritarianism, it's a very easy point to like drum up um, here like in our, in, in the news outlets. And I think one of the interesting cases, right. So the, the situation of like Russia's, you could, I guess, pseudo opposition leader, this gentleman, Alexei Navalny, who's been in prison for quite some time now. And basically he is viewed as the only person who had a fighting chance against Putin in, in an election, um, and has been in jail. And so, like they did a documentary on him recently that won uh, that won an Oscar. Like a lot of that, his plight is getting a ton of a ton of attention, and I think it's an interesting parallel to what's going on in India right now, where you have. Uh, do you want to? Yeah, like yeah, no, yeah. Just before you get into the, yeah. the situation in, in India and in, in Israel, I think what's a you were kind of alluding to this, but I wanted to just delve into it a little more specifically. Where it's easy when we have our quote unquote enemies who are doing wrong things to point out that they're doing wrong things. And it's so like exactly what you're talking about in Russia with Navalny. I think what's one of the really interesting things about Biden convening these democracy summits in the last couple of years is one, like get your own house in order. And we'll talk about that with like Tennessee and Wisconsin in a little bit, right? Like it's kind of being like, Oh, we're hosting this democracy summit. And I can imagine people around the world or even people in the United States being like, I don't know that we're qualified to be doing that right now. Um, But then also like where, when you have these allies, right? Like you're choosing Biden, like in the Biden administration chose which countries to invite. They pretty much determined who is a democracy that qualifies to come to this summit. And some countries like Venezuela, they were like, no, like you, you can't come to this summit because you're not a democracy. Fine. But then you have, and you're going to get into it specifically, countries like India and Israel, which again are close allies of ours. And we need geopolitically for many reasons, some similar, some different. Uh, but then like, I'm not sure like how, how democratic are these countries right now? And so it's, uh, it's, it's always, it's as everything, Ricky, it's always a little more gray and nuanced. That's why I'm, I'm excited to kind of talk a little bit more about this. So yeah, tell us what's going on in India. Yeah, let's get into these examples. So in, in India, the uh, pri- current prime minister, um, Narendra Modi, he's been prime minister since 2014, um, which is actually a, 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 a theme or something that I, I want to come back to. 
Um, so 2014, coming up on basically a decade in party. His party is the BJP, and India is a parliamentary democracy. And we did a little bit of Googling, so hopefully we get this right. Uh, but effectively, you know, you elect the members of parliament, the parliament based on which party they come from, then the party's leader, if they have a, if they have a majority or like a majority coalition, will will effectively bless the prime minister at in trying to figure out exactly how it works, I think the president technically appoints the leader of the party, but I'm not. Yeah. Any Anybody who's got maybe dad, if you're listening, you can call in and, and correct me yeah. next time. Um, <clears throat> but effectively, he's been prime minister for the last 14 years. In the most recent election, 2019, increase, basically increased the number of parliamentary seats that the BJP had and their overall alliance. So like the majority party in India is an overwhelming majority in the in sort of their larger parliament. Um, recently, the leader of the main opposition party, uh, Rahul Gandhi, whose you know last name you'll definitely recognize. So he he's the leader of the the Congress party, the, which did horribly in the last election. But he's still kind of viewed as um, you know a, potentially like the main voice of the opposition to the Modi government. Um, was put in, uh, was convicted for a two-year sentence for defamation for uh, a comment that he made about the president. So like very directly, you know, this is your opposition leader criticizing the president and he's, he was found guilty of defamation in a lower court. Obviously he's going to be doing some appeals, but the immediate, um, the like immediate aftermath is he basically gets expelled and then you know, his future as a politician in India is now severely in doubt because of this conviction, right? So this idea, and, you know, maybe you can draw some parallels to what's happening with Trump. I'll, I'll let you decide if, if you think that's appropriate. But really the idea of uh, a party in power, the overwhelming majority, taking their, the minority party's main leader and putting them in jail um, in terms of how we think about a healthy democracy does not feel does not feel good or right. Um, uh, yeah, uh, maybe I'll leave it there and, and catch your initial thoughts. Yeah, it seems, and again, I haven't paid like super close attention to Modi's uh, tenure right, in power here, but in reading and trying to in preparing for this try to you know, do a decent amount of reading on it. And it feels like this is almost like the culmination of what he's been doing in terms of accumulating power over these last nine years. And I think the concern is that like, it, this seems even more brazen and like he seems emboldened that like, he like almost at this point, like if, if you can prevent the opposition leader from serving in the government for criticizing you, like there's not a whole lot. It seems like you can't do. And Again, you probably know this better than I do, but like he has passed a number of laws that probably would have been said or like re- even repealed laws that the, the judiciary would have said were illegal you know, 10 years ago. But because he and his party have so much power and have kind of neutered the judiciary in, in, a, in a lot of ways in India, like th- those laws have, have stood. And so it's it seems like, again, from very outside that like India is turning into like an increasingly illiberal democracy where where opposition 
is is not only like shunned, but is actively persecuted. And I think not only is that opposition parties, but arguably you've seen that with opposition, quote unquote, opposition ethnicities or religions in the country, too. Yeah. And 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 maybe this is a good question or like a time to pivot and, and try and understand like what maybe uh, the U.S.'s obligation in terms of like how it's supposed to deal with. Like you alluded to the fact that, yeah, India is a is the world's technically the world's largest democracy, has a lot of very strong ties with the United States, is seen as as a strong ally in the region. Um, Obviously, you know, with, uh, you know, what what was going on in Afghanistan and Pakistan, like all those are right in that in in the area right that that india is in and so having uh, a strong um ally there is is very important but at the same time like what you're saying is is exactly true in that they're moving slowly away from our ideal democracy which at one point was a very secular democracy where you know separation of church and state and then term limits which the I, I think is actually going to come back as I like start to think about the list of our democracies that are seem to be heading in the wrong direction. So many of them seem to be heading that way because they don't have term limits. And then, or at least maybe they couldn't go that far that fast if they had term limits. I'll try and say it that way. But yeah, I mean, as you were saying, there a lot of now and Modi's sort of in 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 the style of America first was kind of doing similar things in India. And then on top of that, he was really layering in the India for the Hindus as a um as <clears throat> the majority religion, but for anyone who knows India, its history is wrapped up in all kinds of religions. And actually I think behind Indonesia has the second largest Muslim population in the world. And when he says India for Hindus, He's particularly like India, not for Muslims. And so that is um, that's like very scary in the vein of how we think about liberal democracies. And I think exactly what you alluded to in terms of using the judiciary to kind of further these aims or goals. I think there's an interesting parallel there to what's going on in the United States, maybe. But I think mostly or at least quickly, we can talk about what's going on in Israel uh, first. No, I think that's a perfect transition. And I think one of the things I was reading about was how India is turning into an increasingly an ethnic democracy, where it's a democracy, but only for a certain ethnicity of, of person. And for all those other people, you can live here, but you're essentially second class citizens. And so when we're talking about India, we're talking about um, Muslims or uh People that live in um, Kashmir, for example, or um, I'm trying to think, uh, I guess, like the op- like the opposition party in some ways, or if, it, if, if you're not like a like a Hindi, I suppose. And then when we're talking about Israel, we're essentially talking about non-Jews. So Arabs, Palestinians, um, Muslims, again. Uh, and so I think that's a really interesting uh, connection between the two of them. As you can say, both India and Israel are have increasingly become ethnic democracies yeah and how do we or how should we square that with our understanding that you know everyone who our belief that it's like a fundamental right if you are a citizen that you have you know some self-determination and part of that is being able to elect 
leaders to that that represent you and represent your views and goals and 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 all of that i mean i think that's i guess are you asking that like for the people that are like for you know modi's party or netanyahu's party yeah or or i guess even within the united states like can we i don't know if morally is the right word like or, or like how do we continue to support democracies that are heading in this direction which you know given our own history particularly with with black people in america right like of treating a certain class as second class citizens or certain people as second class citizens and not providing them all of the rights that that you know the majority of citizens enjoy like this seems like backsliding to us but we don't we and and obviously all countries are entitled to their own sort of self-determination and governance how they see fit but can we like is there an inherent conflict there i guess is what i'm asking i had to work that out i'm not even sure a question came out there so (laughs) well yeah i mean i do think the united states has a role in it and that doesn't mean like you say like dictating to these countries that's how they want to govern themselves at all like i don't think we should be dictating to like russia or iran or saudi arabia or north korea how they should govern themselves i can be against how they govern themselves but it's not our job to tell them how to do it but i think i think we have particular power with someone with a country like israel in terms of the relationship and how much israel does depend on the united states for support where like you can exert some pressure and Again, I, we should get into what's happening in Israel because I do think the Biden administration has done that. But India too, and while in, while we need India for a lot of reasons in terms of like geopolitically where they are, India also needs us because they have they have China right on their border, they have Pakistan right on their border, they have Russia, which they have a you know complicated relationship with Russia too. So it's like when when you do have leverage over these countries, yeah, I do think you have some responsibility to. Uh, to put the right type of pressure and to utilize that leverage to to try to prevent this backsliding. But again, it, either of those countries in any other country would be totally right in saying, get your own house in order before you come tell us how to run our democracy, which we'll get into in a little bit. But let's talk about Israel first. Okay. So the situation in Israel is maybe like a, a precursor to what, to a, like a bit of what Modi has been able to do, but effectively Netanyahu and his party are proposing a lot of judicial reforms, um, particularly to basically limit the power of the judiciary to check, to be a check and balance on on the, yeah, I, I don't know if they call it the executive branch, but basically Netanyahu's party and him as a leader. Um, I think they've wanted to do, uh, he, I guess it bears noting that he's like also been on trial or been accused of corruption and things like that. And so personally, I think he's got some issues with the court and the court system in in Israel that he, that he would like to see changed. But yeah, beyond some of those reforms that would kind of limit the judiciary's power, there would also be more of the party in power gets to appoint the judges that do the deciding on top of it. So whereas our system in the United States with lifetime appointments, it tries to keep the judiciary above the political fray. I think we've debated 
long, uh, or we've gotten into long-winded debates on whether or not we're effective in doing that, but at least conceptually, that's the idea. Rather than a judiciary that's specifically that, you know, the party in power comes in and reappoints all of their friends and whoever believes exactly the way they do, people serve lifetime appointments and that way you don't necessarily like really like jerk the country back and forth between different directions based on um based on uh, an election result which is interesting right when you believe in kind of the power and the purpose of democracy to have a situation where it's like yes we do but we also know that these things don't always work out right. And so we want to make sure that there are some like checks and balances within the system. Anyways, yes. the reforms being cho- looked at are effectively to remove a lot of those checks that the judiciary previously had in Israel. Great. Because when we, when we set out, when, when we, you and I started this conversation, what did we say? Like there are core tenets of democracies anywhere that we feel are necessary for any democracy in any part of the world to be successful, to be a true democracy. And checks and balances is like one of the very, very first, very the very foundational beliefs for for democracy, and in Israel, there's really only two branches of government because, as as you noted, with parliamentary democracies, like the executive is chosen from the legislature, so like that's they're almost like merged. They're one in some ways because like the the executive is leading and is selected by the legislature. It's all one kind of branch there. So like, there's no check. Like Netanyahu's party is not going to check him, just like Modi's, you know, uh, the BJP party is not going to check him there. So you really have this judiciary. And while Netanyahu can say that these are judicial reforms, what a lot of opposition people are saying is this is a judicial coup in, in saying that this isn't we're not trying to reform. We're not trying to, quote unquote, reform the judiciary. We're trying to make it so that one, as you alluded to, you personally maybe are not going to get punished for your alleged crimes, but then two, that you're going to be able to make the decisions that we, our party, wants you to make. And again, at that point, there are zero checks and balances at, at, if that happens in, in Israel. And credit to the Israeli people with their mass, literally unprecedented uh, protests where like they've shut down, like the, the major trade unions have, have shut down shut, shut down the streets, they shut down the airports, transportation, and to the point where Netanyahu had to backpedal and say like, hey, We'll, we'll come back to this after Passover is over. And that doesn't mean that the threat is gone, but like the Israeli people stood up and were like, this is not, this is not the type of country we want to be. And it's a huge credit to them. But I do think even to tie it back to India, like the BJP party tried to affect the independent judiciary back in like 2019, I believe. And they failed at doing that. But because, because of that threat, they, they neutered the judiciary in a lot of ways, which has allowed, as I was saying earlier, Modi and the BJP to, to pass a lot of laws that, were I would say are anti anti Muslim or uh, anti like uh, laws that never would have been passed if we had a true check on that party. And so what we're in both countries, what we're you and I, I think are worried about is that they're becoming more and more authoritarian under this guise of democracy. And like you're using quote unquote like democratic processes to actually consolidate power within one person in one party. Yeah. I, I, I think it's, I, I think exactly the point that you made about the protests in Israel is, is a huge, um, I mean, it is, you're, you're so right to call attention to that because in, in many ways, I think we feel like the, 
passive spectators when some of these more technical or like more kind of wonkish changes happen um, within our government and like parliamentary procedure and, you know, whatever these like the rules of engagement are or, or, you know, going back to, you know, in in one of your favorite examples, like Harry Reid changing the number of uh, uh, of senator votes that are required to like appoint a justice. Right. Like there are a lot of these small changes that can happen, seemingly esoteric things that everyday people don't know about. But when they sort of when people do catch wind of it or do start to understand here are the implications like taking to the streets is actually a pretty effective way of of at least sort of quelling some of the most uh, uh, uh you know the the most audacious moves i guess you could say um i think i think that that is a great point and and yeah i mean i I'm, I'm not entirely sure how they they move forward with this i think the scary part is okay maybe they unveiled like this was the grand plan maybe the grand plan doesn't work but once the immediate outrage subsides now we start working on like the small things that can achieve the similar aim um over time where maybe no, no one thing is big enough to trigger the protests that we saw but there's like enough little things to achieve the same end, which is scary. Yeah. You know, I think that's probably much more likely given how it's been received in Israel. And that's where like the democratic backsliding that Biden's talking about, I think is not is not wrong. I think he's he's quite correct about that and happening not only in India and Israel, but the United States, which we'll get into very shortly. But it Ricky, to your point earlier of like when history is it there's all all the progress that we make, it's not by accident, right? It's people you reference the civil rights movement like that was the culmination of generations of americans working towards that and then culminating in like the civil rights act and now we're starting to see it backsliding but that's why you can't like maybe that's natural in some ways like like history kind of like the ebbs and flows that we're talking about but it's it's not it doesn't happen like just like it doesn't happen naturally you know it happens because of specific actions that people take and it was all of those actions to get us to the civil rights act and the voting rights act and then there are actions that have been taken in these last few decades to get us away from that so i I do think it's important for people like it's (laughs) i don't know how to square this because philosophically i do believe that like progress moves forward but it, it doesn't it doesn't just happen it happens because people make it happen and so when we have the backsliding in countries like india and israel and the united states it, it needs to be called out because it, it's not a given that all of a sudden we'll take, we'll, we're just, we're just going to bounce back from this. Yeah. And, and, and maybe this is a perverse way about thinking about it, but like, maybe it is a good thing in that, you know, we, we've talked about historically that there was like, okay, we had the civil rights movement. And so we did the thing, we got the equality and now we're done. Right. Like there's like a, a resting on your laurels type of yep. attitude yep. that, People saying, you know, people trying to push us in the wrong direction may actually be a catalyst to move us again forward in a big leap. And and so while it, it is important to point these things out, obviously, and it is important to try and understand the the, the consequences and uh, and, you know, regrettably. 
things are going to happen in the near term that may not be good, um, just in, that just may not be good in terms of what we think about for the ideal state of democracy. But maybe it is some of those things that really get the momentum that you need, because you, as you said, it doesn't happen naturally. It happens because people start to feel this need that we have to change things and we have to move it forward again. And so, yeah, it's, it's weird to be feeling like you're living in one of those moments where things are going backwards, but it kind of gives you hope that, that, that means that at, I mean, if history is bound to repeat itself or is doomed to repeat itself, that, that maybe that means we'll see something good come out of it eventually, but we're now in that in sort of a, a tenuous place. Yeah, it's really interesting to try to place yourself historically and like how things are happening. I was talking about that um, with one of my friends just the other day, just like she was saying that just like this age of advancement in technology is like what, like besides maybe like the industrial revolution, there are very few other, like the invention of like the typewriter, like there've been very few moments in history that are like this. And it's just weird conceptually to try to, to think about that. Like we're living in that age, same thing, like as you're alluding to with democracies, but it's Ricky, it's the same thing. What you were just talking about made me think about when the Dobbs ruling came out last June, like your, your point was like, if you're a supporter of abortion rights, this is a terrible decision for you, but this is going to energize people to get back out there and, and, and make this like a, a cause because, you know, if you felt like, Hey, this right had been protected for 50 years. Now it's no longer, well, now I need to go out and do something about it. And we have certainly seen that all over the United States in over the last eight months. And one of those examples is in Wisconsin, which we will talk about when we come back. So last week, Wisconsin had a hugely consequential election. And this is an election for their state Supreme Court, which, Ricky, I just, I cannot begin to fathom why we elect just justices, judges at all. But Almost half the states do. Uh, 17 states elect judges in nonpartisan elections, which is what what happened in Wisconsin, and 13 states elect judges in partisan elections. So you have actually over a majority of states that elect judges. And again, as you said earlier, and what I truly believe is that the role of the judiciary is to serve as a nonpartisan, like, check and as to really interpret the law and say what the law is, not what it should be. Electing judges, like I was, I guess I don't, this is another one of those things where you don't typically pay a ton of attention to like the elect, electing of, of judges. But the reason that it's so critical in Wisconsin be, was because the two judges were running on, if you had just put like the Republican platform, whatever that may be these days, and the Democratic platform, that's what they were running on. And it's crazy. It, it, it really was in, insane to me. And so anyway, the people were like, everyone says it these days that this is like the most hugely consequential election in, in a generation. This might actually have been one of those because Wisconsin, you know, I know a state that's near and dear to your heart, and you can probably tell us a little bit more about it, but is a fascinating state where it's like, it's largely a 50-50 state in terms of split politically. But Republicans have dominated the state for the last decade or so because they've had supermajorities in the state legislature. And they have supermajorities because I think what almost everyone will say is gerrymandered districts out there. And so even though 
Wisconsin might go for Biden and they've had a Democratic uh, governor and Tony Evers for last two terms since Scott Walker, uh, even though like they're electing these Democratic leaders on a higher level, the at on the district level, Republicans are just are dominating. And so anyway, we have the the liberal judge, the liberal judge, which is crazy that I'm even saying that. But the liberal judge is uh, she ran on pretty much like uh, I'm going to undo the gerrymandering. I am uh, I am pro abortion rights. I am pro voting rights. It, it's just like in the the conservative judge really ran like kind of against those things and was like, hey, if, if you believe that like we should not be having abortions and that, uh, you know, that we need to have you know safe and secure elections, then you should vote for me for Supreme Court. And it's just like and the reason it's so important is because it was a three three split again, conservative and liberal judges. And so this is really like a swing seat, which it's just like. Anyway, the liberal judge ends up winning. She ends up winning uh, by almost 11 points, 55-45. Um, her name's Janet. Uh, oh, I'm not pronouncing it wrong. Pertazowitz? Janet Pertazowitz, whatever. And this kind of goes back to what I was saying before, is that like this is another yet another example of Republicans losing on the abortion issue because that's like one of the major reasons that she was able to to that's what she ran on and was there she was fundraised on like kind of being like pro-abortion rights because wisconsin has this 1840s law which pretty much put a total ban on abortion in that if the other judge daniel kelly was elected he probably would have upheld that law this she seems likely to strike it down so i don't know ricky i've thrown like a, a lot of stuff out there but it's just this was just symptomatic to me of a larger issue where like in it, I didn't necessarily think this episode was going to focus so much on the judiciary, but it does seem like those are like the common threads that are happening in India and Israel. And you see in Wisconsin where you have judges who they're not saying that they're going to interpret the law and take it on a case by case basis. They're telling you what they believe. And now they're signaling to you, bring your cases because you know how I'm going to rule on this, which is, again, antithetical to what I believe the judiciary should be. Yeah, I I know. I, yeah, I can't imagine how much this type of, uh, yeah, the, how much this just in general is, is, is grinding your gears. Um, and like that, yeah, I mean, the whole, I feel like the first question of any, you know, Senate confirmation for a new appointee is like basically like can how can you be impartial when or like can you be impartial? And it's like here it's very clear, like I have no plans of being impartial no, at all. No, no. <laughs> and yeah, and so that's that's troubling. Yeah, I mean it it's that that's definitely troubling. I think even though obviously the result went in the direction that given the two choices, I would hope that it would go me personally. I think it is something that should be concerning that the way forward is basically by getting judges in and, and this could be, can be said for advancing conservative causes as well, getting judges in that will lean in the direction that you want them to lean, because that is not the point, as you mentioned of the judiciary, the point is if it, in like no uncertain terms to explicitly interpret the law as it was written, as it was intended, not to apply your own intentions or hopes for what it would say or could say or should say. 
um, that is also like, yeah, maybe a harbinger of problems for, for any democracy that at what, you know, uh, as, as conservatives love the, the slippery slope, this idea that once you get away, and I think we've talked about like what, where we are today, is it actually that much different than where we have been? Has the judiciary always been not impartial and always had this slant, whether through a political appointment or through, um, or through these elections. But this notion, like once you don't believe what, you know, whatever your case is that you're going to get a fair trial, whether it's fair in your favor or fair against you, all of a sudden it creates a problem of legitimacy for the system as a whole because the way it was constructed is this i mean this is when you like look at and think about like what they were thinking about when they created the system and marvel at how genius it was if people didn't fuck it up right like yeah. if they just yeah. like let it work the way it was intended but of course that necessitates slower than slower progress than you want it necessitates being stymied in areas that you feel like uh i wish you know this justice would just do whatever you know do whatever i want them to do because whatever i got elected and this is what we should all want to do right like and that is yeah that's that is definitely problematic i guess maybe last note on this i have to imagine conservatives after Kansas, you know, what's going on here, several other states protecting the rights to abortion are going to be thinking, is this going to haunt us in the next election with a very, you would think if it's Biden running again, a very beatable Joe Biden, um, because clearly this is an issue that isn't energizing voters in a way that was unexpected, but per, or maybe not, sorry, not unexpected, but perhaps unanticipated um, from Republican strategists in this, I guess, at this juncture, um, which is interesting. And we'll, I'm very curious to see how they play this going into, going into the general, going into the primaries next year. Yeah, for sure. And obviously people who are listening to this are probably very tuned into the news anyway about how the, the district court ruling in Texas that um, by Judge Matthew Kaczmarek that outlawed the drug mifepristone to be prescribed like or to be sent over the mail. Uh, that's another thing where – so they get um, for people that are not aware, that that's a drug that is one of two that helps um, provide with safe like medically uh, – like a, a, med- a medically induced abortion. Um, and that has been – um, approved by the FDA for 20 plus years and had, had been largely used and used safely and effectively by by millions of women. So anyway, he, he issued a ruling pretty much saying that you couldn't send it by mail anymore at, just last week. And Ricky, I think there were like 250 sent, uh, congressional Democrats that signed on to a letter condemning that ruling. And there were like 39 Republicans that did. Republicans are ducking out of the way. Like people, news outlets are calling. What do you think? No one wants to answer questions about this anymore. Because as you're saying, like politically, they're looking at it and being like, nope, not touching that yeah. issue anymore. Yeah. I mean, uh, 11 points in Wisconsin, like you said, a 50 yes. state is a landslide. Yep. Yep. Huge statement. One thing I want to come back to one other thing you said, which is 
like the Ben Franklin quote, it's a, you have a democracy if you can keep it type thing where in the Harry Reid situation that you brought up earlier, which is a favorite like hobby horse of mine. My friend used that uh, phrase the other day and I was like, oh, I really like that phrase. Whatever. I've been harping on this Harry Reid thing, Ricky, since we started this podcast almost three years ago. It's like, it's probably in like the very first episode that we did, but it's Harry Reid. And like you said, Ricky, it's, it came out of just an impatience of not getting what we wanted. So he changed the rules. And as I have always said, McConnell literally comes out right after and says, careful, because as soon as we're back in power, we're going to change rules. And what you have now is to get confirmed as a federal judge, all you need is 51 votes because of what Harry Reid and then, and now even as a Supreme Court judge, all you need is 51 votes, which um, Mitch McConnell did. So what you're doing, Ricky, is as a judge, Previously, you went out of your way to show how impartial you were. Right? You wouldn't make any inflammatory statements when there were when during the uh, the confirmation hearings. You wouldn't say anything. People could ask you like, "What's what's you know what's the Second Amendment?" And you'd be like, "I'm not sure. I'd have to see what the case law says about it." You know, like you wouldn't you you made no statements about anything, uh, and you didn't write any articles about it. You didn't go out of your way to speak at con- politically like uh, or like activist con- conferences, because if in order to become a federal judge, you didn't want anything in your background to disqualify you. It's the opposite now, because all you're doing is I just need, whenever my party's in power, I need them to know that I'm going to rule in favor of them. And so what you have judges doing now are actually coming out and being specifically partial, right? They, they are going to these conferences and they're writing opinions because they want to get on people's radars. And like this guy, Kazmarek, that, he's laying down a marker for the next Republican president to say, hey, let's elevate him to a, to a circuit court. And we've seen the same thing with conservative justices over the last few years when Trump was in power of like writing these scathing opinions that are like way you would never see them before. Because, again, ju- judges traditionally like to kind of decide cases narrowly. But you have judges deciding cases like way expansively because they want to get on people's radars because all you need is 51 votes. And so whatever that I think you were right to point to. That the Harry Reid, that was a moment in time, which is a moment where maybe a lot of regular people didn't pay attention to, understandably. But that's like a crucial, like backsliding moment that's now haunting us 11 years later. Yeah. Rant over. (laughs) I mean, well, we get that one once a quarter, but it's, it is, I, I, I think it's, it is, it's, it's fair in so many ways. And like, it's interesting that we can see what's going on in Israel with both the proposals to reform, but also the protests and think about like, okay, like, as you said, our house may also not be in order. Um, I think maybe before we wrap this episode, you know, one last thing to mention sort of these recent events in, in Tennessee that, um, I don't know that that both like make you question how our democracy is working, but also uh, there there's like a, been a bit of a resolution there as well that makes you feel like a little bit better about it. So just a, if if people haven't seen this story, um, also an interesting one, obviously precipitated by yet another uh, tragedy, a, a mass shooting in Tennessee, um, and then you had <clears throat> um, two black state. Cong- con- state Congress? Actually, I'm not even sure if they're House in the in the state House. Or- yeah, they're so they're representatives. Sorry, yeah. So two uh two black representatives um in Tennessee and then an- another, I think a white woman who joined them in basically interrupting uh uh like a session um of the House of Congress to 
demand some type of change on gun control or some type of reform or, or basically that people pay more attention than the the customary thoughts and prayers, T's and P's. Um, and they were basically swiftly expelled from their positions. Um, so obviously Tennessee made some <laughs> some crazy decisions because they expelled the two black men, did not by one vote fail to expel the one white woman who was there with them. Um, maybe she wasn't on the blowhorn or something. I'm not sure what, what reason they would give besides race, but it, it doesn't look good, whatever it is, right? Optically, it looks terrible. And then on top of it, expulsion from basically means that those people who had voted for these two men are now on, or, you know, they lose their chance at representation for something that I think does not really rise to that level, but we get back to Tennessee has the same situation, right? Super majorities that they can make these decisions. And maybe they didn't, hadn't like known before, hadn't decided to like test the waters with like, wait, what happens if we just like kick these guys out and, and keep going. And I think it was interesting because they did like swiftly see pretty large protests um, against their actions. Obviously the story got some traction in the white house as well. Um, but yeah, I mean, just another, another interesting story, I guess. Additionally, I'll, I'll mention, I don't know if you saw any of those guys give, uh, speeches basically on their way out as they were getting kicked out. Uh, I, I think they could be some politicians to watch. They have like that cadence, like the, the, the way certain, uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's an interesting video. If anyone has time to, to look in, they just like, they remind me of like sixties and seventies politicians that like have a very rhythmic way of talking that just like kind of lulls you in and um, was, was, was kind of fun to watch, but kind of a, a a scary, a scary scene. Um, Maybe not physically, but like just in terms of like how our democracy is working, that people who are protesting something like gun control could see their, could see them get dismissed um, from their roles as state representatives. Well said. Yeah. It's just like uh, you sit back and you shake your head and be like, what are you doing? And both from like a democracy point of view, but also just from like a political point of view, like we've made martyrs of, of these guys and I understand that like they violated house rules, but to, to expel someone from a, a an elected representative from a, a body of government is like, is like almost unprecedented. Only five people in the history of the House have been, the U.S. House, have been expelled. Like, George Santos is still serving in the House. So we have these two guys, right? Like, again, I don't doubt that they they broke House rules, but they're arguing for more gun control and gun safety because people in their communities were just murdered. And so, again, whatever you think about their opinions on that issue, they have legitimate opinions on it. And to just to kick them out and to take away representation from people, which again, not only these representatives black, but between, so it's Justin Jones, Justin Pearson and Gloria Johnson. They represent the three largest cities in Tennessee, which are more minority than, than the rest of the state as a whole. And so it becomes a question of not only are we trying to silence dissenting voices, but like whose voices are we really trying to silence here? And uh, that's, as, as you said, we're like, we're hosting this democracy summit and then simultaneously we're like, we're kicking out lawmakers from state legislatures that, that we don't agree with their opinions. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. 
it does kind of give you uh, maybe a new perspective though a little bit on like you know we always or we focus a lot on the fact that when we have a split congress or when the senate is like 50, you know 51 to 49 or 50 to 49 kind of thing it's a wow nothing's going to get done because we can't agree on anything we can't get beyond filibusters or whatever there is a bit of when you start to look at the places where you have these overwhelming majorities and what they elect to do with that power and start to think like, maybe it is good if you just take it slower. Uh, That doesn't mean that we should never do anything. And there are certainly ways that we have made progress despite, you know, this tension and, and, and kind of the, the, the very even divide between left and right that we have established here in the U S but like, man, it can go, it can go wrong. And I, I, I'm going to, I wanted to say this in the last time, I'm just going to end this uh, and my rant with, with this. I, I think the, the idea of term limits is something that I didn't really think about um, as being as important as on reflecting on some of the examples that we've looked at today is when I, when I think about what's happening in Israel, Netanyahu first becoming prime minister back in like 19, late nineties, maybe 96 or 97, Modi reaching 10 years. You can look at obviously the, the countries that we have the biggest problems with Putin is close to 20 years. Xi Jinping is over 10, I think. So like in all of these places, right. What is that Alfred Lord Tennyson quote? power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. It's like maybe my favorite quote and also possibly like the truest thing I've ever heard about politics. Um, and the, the idea of, of term limits, it's yeah. Yeah. I mean, in general, whether it's been talked about in the judiciary as well, I don't know how well it plays. I think there was a specific reason they didn't do that, but maybe there's something to it as well. I don't know. Yeah, it feels like we should we could have a whole episode about that. And yeah. Maybe maybe we will because I think that's a really interesting conversation and debate. But um, this was this was a fun conversation. You and I were both like this was such a conceptual conversation that we were like I'm not sure how this will play out, but I I enjoyed it. Hope people out there did as well. One thing I wanted to mention before we go for people that live in Boston or Massachusetts, uh, this is the 10th anniversary. So yesterday, 4:15 was the 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombing. The marathon's being run tomorrow or in this case today, when the episode comes out, um, Marathon Monday is one of the biggest like local regional holidays here and uh, always such a great day and has been, you know, was indelibly marred and, and scarred and marked by this uh, this terrible uh, act and it's a tragedy. And so just a quick reminder, um, the, the, the five people that died in it, Martin Richard, who was eight years old, uh, Lindsay Liu was 23. Crystal Campbell was 29, and then the two officers that died, uh, Sean Collier and Dennis Simmons. So just, I mean, it's, uh, there's so many stories 10 years later of people who have rebounded from the tragedy and people who were were wounded and lost limbs and have gone on to live really incredible lives. And it's there's a lot of like hope in this 10 years on, it comes back to normal in a lot of ways, which is great. Like that's, you want to remember how far we've come since then. And and for us, particularly those individuals who, again, have gone on to live really impactful lives. But obviously, those five individuals I just named never got to to make the, that progress. And so 
just that I know people remember them every year on, on the marathon, but 10 years, 10 years on I figured it, it was worth bringing up too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thanks for that. It's uh, I think, yeah, for Boston residents, right. It's like nine 11, number one, and, and the marathon bombing number two for things that you remember where you were and what you were doing. Um, and it's okay. Can't believe it's been 10 years. Yeah. All right. Well, that's, uh, I didn't mean to like leave it on a down note. I think again, there's a lot to celebrate, uh, with 10 years and for everyone who does live around here and is going to go out and enjoy marathon Monday. I hope everyone has a wonderful day for everyone running the marathon and raising so much money for so many great causes. Hopefully you have good weather for that. And yeah, that's all I got. Ricky. Thanks to everyone as always for listening. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. We'll see you next time. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the value sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your regal bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days we'll leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find and chase the lion's head. Folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz oh, What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks of different minds Because though we did not 
Champagnes we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz